Hey, Timberline, we're going to go ahead and jump into God's Word now. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 130. Now, in our outdoor service today, at the end of our service, we're going to be doing a baptism. And baptism is when we publicly profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And because of that, what we're going to do today in our text is just look at the gospel. We're going to look at the gospel that saves us, that brings about forgiveness of sins, that unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so uh, to begin, I want to uh, perhaps remind you, you, you may have heard of a man named John Wesley. John Wesley lived in the 18th century. He was an incredible and influential Christian and theologian. He, uh, he founded the Methodist denomination. He grew up in a Christian home. He studied at Oxford and at a young age became a pastor of a church. But interestingly, when he looks back at those, young, at those younger years, he says, I wasn't even a Christian. Do you get that? He was a pastor, wasn't even a Christian. And so he says, he describes his life at that moment. He says, I felt like I was always fighting, but never conquering. He says, I felt like I was always trying to rise again, but always falling. He says, I felt defeated and frustrated constantly. But then on May 24th, 1738, he trusted in Jesus Christ when he went to an evening, uh, an evening chapel service on the book of Romans. And on that day, he experienced the birth of the Christian life. He experienced the grace of God, the forgiveness of sins. And from that moment on, his life was incredibly different. He trained pastors. He planted churches. He created discipleship pathways that would help Christians continue to grow and mature in their faith. Now, what's not so well known about John Wesley is that earlier that day on May 24th, he was actually at another service. And in that first service he went to, Psalm 130 was sung as an anthem. And looking back at that service, he says that that anthem became one of the primary ways that God used to open his heart to the gospel of salvation. In fact, he says that Psalm 130 warmed his heart so that he would then believe in the gospel. And that's my prayer today. My prayer is that your heart and my heart would be warmed by the very truth of God's gospel. And so if you have believed in Jesus... As we go through the text today, I pray that you are moved to greater worship and awe of our God who saves us. If you've not yet trusted in Jesus, I pray that as we walk through the word, that you would see who our God is, that you would understand that you are sinful before him, and that through Jesus Christ, he brings about forgiveness so you could have everlasting life. And I pray that your heart is warmed by that truth today. And so uh, what I want to encourage you to do is go ahead and stand. Here at Timberline, we stand at the reading of God's word um, as a means of reminding ourselves of the beauty and the truth and the authority of this word and as a means of acknowledging our God and King Jesus Christ. So here we go, Psalm 130. O Lord, or sorry, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities. O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all, his iniqui- from all its iniquities. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you now. I just thank you for your grace. I thank you for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross that we could be forgiven. Lord, help us to better understand your word today. May we be in awe as we behold your glory. And Lord, I pray that our hearts are warmed by the truth that your son, Jesus Christ, has died on the cross, that we would be saved. Bless now the preaching of your word. Be glorified. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, So we're going to begin right where the psalmist begins, and we're going to be uh, looking at the despairing depths of sin. And so the the psalmist uses the word depths in verse 1. And the word depths is often used to describe uh, great situations of distress. For example, in Psalm 69, verse 2, we read, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, the depths of waters, that's that word there, and the flood sweeps over me. And so why is the psalmist in great despair? What has happened that he's crying out desperately for help? Has he, has he been experiencing great suffering? Has he experienced the loss of a loved one, perhaps the death of someone close to him? Well, in verses 2 and 3, we come to our answer. In verse 2, he says he needs mercy. Now, mercy is God's goodness given to those in misery. So he's saying, I'm in misery, and I need your mercy. Now, why? Why is it he needs God's mercy? Well, we read that in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, because if God keeps track of our sins, our iniquities, then we have no chance of standing before him. We have no chance. See, what has happened, the psalmist has just realized that he is a sinner against a holy and perfect God. And it's that knowledge that God is holy and perfect and he is a sinner that drives him into the depths of despair. And you should notice, the first thing that happens when we come to realize the glory and splendor of the God of the Bible is that we realize how sinful and unworthy we are to come into His presence. And we see that throughout Scripture. Let me just give a couple of examples. Many of you might know the story of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, God is commissioning Isaiah to be a prophet that will go forth to Israel and proclaim His word. And so Isaiah has this vision of God in his throne room. And God is sitting on his throne in all of his glory and his might and his power and his splendor. There's angels flying around crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when Isaiah sees this, this is what he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Peter begins to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, he falls down. He says, depart from me, for I I am a sinful man, O Lord. He says, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. I I, I must get away from you. You're too holy for me. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon 
to thousands of people. And at the end of the sermon, they're convicted. They realize that they are sinful. They realize that they have offended an almighty, perfect God. And so they cry out, what do we do? All throughout Scripture, we see that when, when we behold the might and the power and the, holy and the holiness and glory of the God of the Bible, we realize we're sinful and unworthy. So I just want, have you experienced that? Have you realized that you are a sinner before an almighty God? Now, you might think, well, I'm actually not that bad. And when you compare yourselves to others, you say, I'm actually morally pretty good. But here's the thing. God doesn't compare you against me or against someone else. He holds you and me against the perfect plumb line of his righteousness. And against that plumb line, we all fail. You see, God knows your every thought, every lust, every angry moment that you have. He hears our every word, our slander, our lies. He knows every time we have misrepresented the truth. He sees our every action in public and in private. And while we might look good to others, when we're held up against the perfect holy standard of God, we fail miserably. I mean, Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us. There's no exceptions to that rule. You see, the condition of humanity is that we are sinful. We were created in His image. We were created to worship Him. We were created so that every breath that we breathe would be for His glory, would be to worship Him. But because of sin, we rejected Him. We denied His glory for our own glory. And listen, there, there's no exceptions to this truth. There's no exceptions to this truth. In Romans 3, verse 10 11, we read this, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And so you might then say, so what's the penalty then? What's the penalty for, for sinful humanity, for the fact that we have rejected and denied God? Well, the punishment is eternal judgment. It's experiencing the eternal wrath of God. And the Bible uses many terms to, to communicate what this looks like. The gnashing of teeth. It talks about torment, fire, lake of fire. It uses all these words to communicate the severity of God's wrath. And you might say, what, eternal gnashing of teeth, lake of fire? That seems a little severe, doesn't it? Well, it is until we remember that the severity of judgment is always based upon the authority of the one offended. Let me just, um, I've used this example many times. I didn't come up with it. Someone else did. I just think it's a very helpful example. If, if someone was to come up to me, like after the outdoor service today, and they were to hit me, not a lot's going to happen. Hopefully someone's going to jump in and stop it, but, but not a lot's going to happen. But if you go and hit a police officer, you're going to be arrested. If you go hit the President of the United States, you're, you're probably going to get shot. Now, here's the thing. Same action, different consequences based upon the authority of the one offended. And so if that's true, how much greater 
the judgment for when we offend the almighty, eternal, holy, glorious God who created you and me that we would worship him and yet we've denied him, we've rejected him. The punishment is eternal. Now, I know we don't like to, to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about judgment. In fact, oftentimes we, we want to skip over those parts. And in fact, the sad truth is there are many churches that will not preach about sin today. There are many churches that will just not talk about the wrath of God. But here's the thing. It's only when we understand the depths of our sins, the blackness of our sins, that we then see the beauty the need, the necessity of God's grace. I mean, think about this. When you go to a jewelry store and the, the clerk gets out one of his diamonds, he doesn't just hold it up for you, but he puts it upon a perfectly black piece of velvet because against that black backdrop, we see the beauty of the diamond. And so that's what happens when we begin to understand the depths of our sin. Yes, we understand that we are under a judgment of God, but that's then where we see we need God's grace, His mercy, and we see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we go now. That's where the psalmist takes us. He takes us into the extravagant grace of our God. Look at verse 4. We read, because of sin, we have no hope. God sees our sins and we're guilty before him. There's no chance, we read in verse 3, that we can stand before him. We're powerless to atone for our sins. And then verse 4, but with you, there is forgiveness of sins. God forgives. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the message of this word. That God gives grace and forgives, forgives us in the depths of our sins. And when we say we are forgiven by grace, what we mean is that there is nothing you or I do to earn it, to deserve it. It is the free gift of God. You see, God sent his son Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago to die on a cross so that he would then stand in your place and my place and he would absorb the wrath of God so that you and I could be forgiven. One pastor, I think it was David Platt, I think it was one of his books, he said it like this, imagine a wall of water is coming at you a thousand miles wide, a thousand miles high and at a thousand miles an hour. You have no chance of escape. Death is imminent. You got concrete boots on. And right as this whole wall of water is coming, that's going to crush you for all of eternity, a great chasm opens up before you and swallows up every single last drop of that water so you don't even experience a sprinkle. That's what Jesus does for us at the cross. God's wrath is against us, and we have absolutely no chance of enduring it, of, of, of surviving it. We will suffer under it for all of eternity. But yet God, in his great grace and goodness, sends Jesus, who comes 
in the, in the flesh of a man so that he would be able to stand in your place and my place and fully and absolutely absorb the wrath of God so that you and I, we who believe in him, who are forgiven by the grace of God, we would not even experience one drop of God's wrath because Jesus has absorbed all of it. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what we celebrate. And so let me just make a few comments about God's forgiveness. Number one, God's forgiveness is sufficient. When we come into the Bible, we see that Jesus, that his blood is sufficient to cleanse us from every single sin. Do not think that there's any sin that you have committed that God's blood is not able to wash away and cleanse. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 10, we read, we have been sanctified, we've been made holy, we've been cleansed, we've been purified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all, through his one sacrifice going to the cross 2,000 years ago, fully and absolutely sufficient to cleanse you from every sin, past, present, and future. The blood of Jesus cleanses us, makes us holy. It's why there's forgiveness of sins. Number two, God's forgiveness is immediate. Hear this, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven now. Not just waiting as if someday in the future we go, well, I, I hope it's going to happen. But we begin to experience the very grace, the comfort, the joy of God right now. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you hear that? Paul says, look, I've experienced the forgiveness of God. And because of that, Christ lives in me now. He is my life. Listen, you don't begin to experience eternal life when you die or when Jesus returns. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you experience eternal life today. Jesus is eternal life. And so when we believe in him, when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, we have eternal life. We have the very joy, the grace, the forgiveness of God at that moment. You see how good that is? If you're, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, then know this. You are forgiven now. And God's grace is in you now, working in you, that you would begin experiencing the truth of that life now. And yes, we await the fullness of it when Jesus returns. But we begin to experience the gift today. If you've not yet trusted in Jesus, I urge you, trust in him today. Experience his grace now. Do not wait. Do not wait. Number three, God's forgiveness is for all who wants it. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he writes this in Romans chapter 10. He says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then he says this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Look, it doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. If you confess in Jesus Christ today, you are saved. 
you are forgiven. But here's the thing. We must confess. We must trust in Jesus Christ. We must acknowledge Him as our King, as our Lord, as our Savior. You see, we often want to hide our sins. We want to conceal them. We don't want people to know what we've done. But here's the thing. God already knows. He sees everything that you and I have ever done and ever will do. He knows every thought in our heart. He knows what we think when we're alone in our house, when no one else is around. He knows those thoughts. And in light of all that, he sends his son, Jesus Christ, and says, if you will believe in my son, Jesus Christ, you are saved. Know this. If you right now, you're feeling that warming of the heart, you're saying, I want this. And yet there's this lie that's coming up and saying, "Mm, God doesn't want you. Mm, You've probably done too much. You're not really going to come to Jesus. He he doesn't really want you. He means other people. Listen, that is a lie straight from the depths of hell. Jesus Christ went to the cross so that those who believe in him would be saved. And so if you're feeling the warming of your heart right now, the Holy Spirit, just bring that conviction. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and I stand guilty against the Holy God. And I urge you today to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And today, experience forgiveness of sins. Do not wait. Number four, God's forgiveness is about His glory. Look at the end of verse four. It says that you may be feared. Now, why does God ultimately forgive us? Why is it that God forgives us? What's the purpose? I mean, we know it's not because of our worth. Titus 3.5, it talks about we're not saved because of our righteousness. Remember, we've already seen that God sees all of our sins. We've already read in Romans 3.23, we all stand guilty before God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So we know He doesn't ultimately forgive because of something in us. But what we read is that, that you may be feared. That word feared means that he has saved us, that we'd be in holy, reverent awe of him. He saves us so that, he would, so that we would behold his glory and worship him. He saves us to display his glory, his majesty, his beauty, his worth. That's why he does it. He, he made us in his image so that we would know him, that we would have joy in him. Now, sin separates us from that. And then he sends forth uh, his son, Jesus Christ. And even in the Old Testament, he makes these promises about redeeming, ultimately coming true in Jesus Christ. And he keeps all of these promises as a means of revealing his faithfulness revealing His justice and His truth and His grace and His mercy. It's a way in which He displays His own glory that you and I would forever enjoy Him in reverent awe and worship. I mean, Isaiah 43, 25, God says this. He says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. He does it for the display of His glory. Think of it like this. 
when you go to the Grand Canyon and you're standing on the edge of the canyon and, and you're looking at all the beauty of the walls of the canyon, the colors, and as the sun hits it and you're looking at the size and the depth of the canyon, the width of the canyon, you don't stand there on the edge of the Grand Canyon and go, well, I am, I'm really big and wonderful. Or on one of those dark, dark nights where there's not a cloud in the sky and every single star seems to be out and all of its shimmering brilliance. And you're looking at the millions and millions of stars up there. You're not looking at them and going, man, I am so incredibly important right now. Oh, but you're, you're moved to humility at those moments. In the same way, when we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, what we are seeing there is the grace of God. We're seeing His goodness and His greatness, His justice and His mercy. We're seeing His faithfulness. We're seeing the very glory of God on display, not so that we would go, look at how great I am, but that so we would fall on our knees and cry out, our God is worthy of our glory and honor and praise. That's what salvation does. It ultimately brings us into the presence of God that we would behold His glory because there is none as glorious as our God. And so when God saves us, He saves us for His glory. But this saving us transforms us that we would now live a different way. If before we come to know Jesus, all we do is sin, then upon being saved, we now begin living in obedience to God. This faith is made evident in how we live. And so what I want to do is just show two ways that our faith is made evidence, that we have been forgiven by the very grace of God. And this is actually what the psalmist does. This is how he ends the psalm. So let's look at these two ways that demonstrate our faith in Jesus. Number one, we anticipate the return of Jesus. We anticipate his return. Look at verses five and six. Three times the psalmist says he waits for God. Verse six, he says, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. And then he says again, more than the watchman for the morning. You see, uh, back in the Old Testament times, there'd be a guard up on the wall at night. And he'd be patrolling the wall and he would do so to make sure that there was no enemies that would sneak, sneak up close to the wall in the darkness in the cover of night. And so he would walk in and the, that watchman would be longing for the rising of the sun each day, not just so it was the end of his shift, but because as the sun rose, it would reveal all that's on the landscape. And there'd be safety and security there because they would know what is there. And none of the enemies would come and breach the walls during the day. So he longed for the sun every single night for the safety and security it would bring. Now, what he's communicating is he, even more than the watchman longs for the sun. Even more than the watchman wants the warmth of the sun to come and illuminate the landscape. He says, I want God. I want to be in his presence I want to experience the physical presence of God every day. That's what he's saying. I just want to be with God. 
And so I want you to think, if that's true of the saints in the Old Testament, how much more true is that for us today where we stand in relation to the cross? You see, we, we know exactly how God has forgiven us through Jesus Christ. And we know what happens at the end of the story. In Revelation, we see that Jesus returns, brings about a new heavens and new earth so that you and I, all who believe in Him, all who have been forgiven, would live with God forever. That's why the book ends. Revelation, the end of the Bible, it ends with, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Hear this, as Christians, the evidence that we have been saved is that we long for the return of Christ, that we want Him to come, that we want Him more than anything else this world has to offer. And so you might say, well, well what does that look like to anticipate the, the coming of Christ, to long for Him, to yearn for Him to come? Well, we read that here in Psalm 130, where he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. We obey His word. That's what it looks like to anticipate His coming. He says, the way we display, the way we display our love and our longing for God is through our obedience to God's word. We're in His word every day. Studying it, memorizing it, but not just for, for knowledge sake. We're not just trying to gain information, but it's about transformation that we become more and more like Christ, that we would behold his glory, that we would display his love and his glory in this world. Every day we're to be in his word. So I want to encourage you, if you are a believer, if you've been forgiven by God, one of the things God is working in you right now is that you would be in His Word, reading and obeying as a means of anticipating His return, as a means of also bringing about His return. Do you understand that? It's as we obey Him that God uses our obedience to actually bring about the return of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, it's, it's when the nations have received the gospel. As the church, as you and I, we go out and we proclaim the gospel, not only here, but also all throughout the world. And when that last nation, when that last person hears the gospel and believes, that's when Jesus returns. And so the way we long for Jesus is through obedience to his word, that we would go proclaim his word, so that Jesus would return and we would experience His presence for all of eternity. In fact, that's what the author does. Not only do we anticipate His return, but we announce His glory. Look at verse 7. The psalmist now turns to everyone around him. And he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. Notice, so he's been talking about his desire for forgiveness and his love for God. And now, at the end of this psalm, after he sees that he's been forgiven, he now turns to everyone else and he says, believe in God, hope in God. He's the one who is sufficient to forgive us. The grace of God is such good news that we are unable to contain it. Think about it like this. 
if tomorrow the IRS shows up at your door and the guy says, you owe $50 million in back taxes. And so what they're going to do, they're going to take away everything you own. Your family will be homeless and you're going to be taken to jail until you can pay back every single last dollar. And right when they're about to put the handcuffs on you and take you away, someone steps forward and says, I have $50 million and I'll pay that entire debt. He writes a check right there, hands it to him. Handcuffs are off. What do you do? Do you go back in your house and finish washing dishes? Do you go start the lawnmower so you can mow the lawn? Just go about life like normal? No, you break out into tears of joy, crying out, thank you, you hug the man. You start running around and telling everyone what happened. You're getting on the phone, you're Facebooking, you're TikToking and Snapchatting, you're even reviving your old MySpace page, remember those? And you're putting it out there so everyone knows what has happened. You've been saved. And what we understand is that through the gospel, we've been saved by something much greater than a financial debt. We've been saved from a spiritual debt. One, that if we are not pardoned from, if we don't trust in Jesus, then we will spend all of eternity in hell suffering under the wrath of God. And yet Jesus has come so you and I would be forgiven. Look, there is no greater news than that. That's why we go out. In Matthew 28, verse 18, 19, and 20, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the mission of the church. And it's not that we go begrudgingly. We're not going like the four-year-old does to go clean his room. Fine, I have to go clean my room. Fine, I have to go tell other people about Jesus, that he saves us from our sins, that we don't suffer eternally under the wrath of God. That would make no sense. We go in great joy because we understand the depths that we've been saved from. Hear this. What your neighbor needs, what your wife needs, what your husband needs, what your kid needs, your son, your daughter what your co-workers need, what the guy on the other end of the world needs. What everyone needs most in this world is to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because there is no other truth that saves. That's our mission as the church. We make disciples who make disciples. We grow in our knowledge of the word for the purpose of living out the truths of God's word, that we'd proclaim it, that more and more people would know Jesus. Hear this, the evidence that you're forgiven is that you anticipate the return of Jesus and we demonstrate that through our active obedience to God and we announce His glory. We announce the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. That is what God is working in you right now if you're a believer. Right now, and that can be your prayer. God, help me to obey your word. Help me to announce the gospel. I promise you God will answer those prayers because that is what His Spirit is doing in you right now. Look, this is the gospel. This is what we've looked at today. That the gospel saves us from a debt you and I have no chance of ever paying back. Saves us and transforms us. There would be sons and daughters in the very family of God, given an eternal citizenship that we would live with God forever. There is no greater news than that. I pray you know that. I pray your heart has been warmed by that truth. 
but you also might be here. And just like John Wesley, in the early parts of his life, he knew about the gospel. He knew truths about God. He was even a pastor. How crazy it is that he was a pastor, and yet he had never trusted in Jesus. I just want to ask you, is that you? Have you never experienced the warming truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your heart? Are you just going through routines? Do you just show up to church on a weekly basis, just out of a tradition, out of a routine? Or is it actually because you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Look, there's a, a sad reality. We're not going to go into it, like why and all the means, but especially here in America, there are many people who attend church on a regular basis, who would profess that they are Christians when in fact they are not. So I just want to ask you, do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know that you've been forgiven? One of the ways you know that is that you're anticipating his return through the obedience to his word and you're announcing his glory. If those things are absent from your life, I would urge you to wrestle with, have I trusted in Jesus? Now, you might be here and you've, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I urge you today to experience His forgiveness now. Experience the warming of the gospel right now. It doesn't matter, remember, what you've done. All that matters is that you profess Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, you acknowledge that you are a sinner, and that He is the way, the truth, and the life. I urge you, believe in Him today. Experience the joy of salvation, that you also would live and proclaim the truth of this King for all of eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, that you have given us by grace. By grace, you save us by your great mercy. Lord, may we know that. May we celebrate that. So, Father, I just pray. I pray for the truth of your word today that it warms our hearts. May we be in awe and worship of you. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.